Welcome to the Jay Martin Show and the Pursuit of Personal Sovereignty. Now, my guest today is David Smith, an author and analyst who writes under the Morgan Report with David Morgan, among many other things. Now, I drove towards a question I've been trying to answer recently, which is, with the U.S. more or less confiscating $600 billion in USD reserves from Russia, what message is that sending to central banks all over the world? But more importantly, what are they going to do now with their currency reserves? And will they look for alternatives to the U.S. dollar? And if so, what does that look like? So I got David's thoughts on that in addition to his price prediction for silver, which is $50 in 2022. And obviously, we drove into uh, how he comes up with that number. So hope you enjoy this interview. As always, there's a pinned comment beneath this video where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I absolutely love writing it and would love to have you join the team. I publish every week. Here is David Smith. Enjoy. All right, here he is, David Smith, back on the show. David, good to see you. Good to see you again, Jeff. So here's where I want to start. We're chatting about this off camera. A uh, narrative that I've been paying attention to has been since the United States more or less confiscated $600 billion in USD reserves from Russia uh, to penalize them for being a bad actor. I've been curious if this is sending a message to every other central bank around the world who holds their insurance policies, reserves, et cetera, in US dollars. And it's going to make them start thinking, our USD isn't nearly as secure as we thought it was. Turns out if the US decides we're a bad actor at their discretion, they can just manipulate this uh, to their benefit or against ours. So are you seeing this as a trend starting to materialize, David? And do you have any thoughts on that? I do. And I think, uh, Jay, that it's impossible to overstate the significance of this action on the part of the Fed and the government. And you've expressed it precisely. It's going to put doubt consciously and subconsciously in the minds of every central, every other central bank, of every other major financial institution. And, you know, they've done these sort of things at lower levels, but I believe this is the first to actually, uh, you know, uh, corral the, uh, the central bank holdings of another country and freeze them. It's one thing to freeze a bank in you know, New York, but it's another thing to freeze central bank assets. And, and you know, this... You can use the analogy Pandora's box or crossing the Rubicon or any number of others, and I don't think any of those are too strong. And that money was not just sitting there uh, on its own. That that was involved in paying of already uh, prescribed debts and contracts back and forth between Russia and other countries. And so that ability to pay off those obligations, which are legal obligations, has been stymied on the part of the Russians. And then everyone else down the line is going to have to wonder, well, if I get on their bad side, will they do the same to me? And that is an absolutely valid concern. And you would be uh, really naive to ignore it as one of those actors. Now, let me ask you a question. I was chatting to George Friedman from Geopolitical Futures, one of my favorite geopolitical analysts. And he described this move as unprecedented, but not unwarranted. He described it as the maturation of the American empire. Historically, if there's a conflict that America wants to control, they'll throw troops at it, right? They'll activate the military and put boots on the ground, right? That's not a sustainable plan, however, and we've seen that over the last decade, how poorly that can turn out. He describes this as the American empire learning 
how to flex their economic muscle more so than just their military strength. And this is the maturation that every empire goes through. I found it to be an interesting statement and, and perspective. What do you think about that? I think George's comment is uh, prescient and on the mark. I'm a paid subscriber to his letter, have been for many years. And I think he's correct. Now, when you first made the comment that it was warranted, it would almost seem like he was agreeing that it was okay. But as he builds it out, and as you quote him further, he's not saying that at all. He said, this, this is what you'd expect as an empire matures and actually reaches the point of moving toward decay. And so this is not a good thing. And, you know, uh, in war, when you do certain things to your enemy, at some point, you might defeat them initially, but they learn your tactics and your techniques, and they turn those on you. This is exactly what has happened in our kinetic warfare in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and these other places. And now it's taken at a financial level. And so, and there's even been other people that have talked about the financial aspects of what they call World War III financial. And so um, this is probably not the last time we're going to see something like this, but I think it's very deleterious in terms of fostering uh, cooperation in world trade, whether it's with your perceived enemies or with people, uh, your allies, and it puts the seed of doubt in all of their, all of their minds as to how that might play out. Uh, you, you know, you, you get the privilege of dealing with us as long as you do what we say and how we say it. And if not, then we'll change the rules on you. Makes sense. Okay, now back to uh, other central banks, maybe looking at their USD reserves um, critically. You know, so what is what do we expect from uh, Japan, from uh, Germany, from Israel? You know, do you expect them to start diversify those reserves, and and if so, where to? I think what's what's happening and what's going to continue to happen is something. Uh, there's a term that isn't used much anymore. It's called autarky. And autarky, as my understanding of it, has to do with the desire of a nation or a group to become self-sufficient. And we're, we're moving in that direction already in terms of manufacturing, bring more of it back into this country to control the process and, and the stream of it. But now it's, it's also going into the financial aspect because uh, our, our finances are at risk. And as you know, the only true money, the only true financial element that does not someone else's risk are gold and silver, actually, because the people that hold it in their hand have the claim to it. Nobody else has a claim beyond that. But all financial instruments, be they bonds, be they contractual obligations that we made, be they fiat currencies of any of our countries, including the U.S. dollar and the petrodollar, which circulates outside the United States, all of those are uh, have claims on them by someone else. And when you do things like we've done recently, which I think have been done without much forethought, and by people that largely have very little or no understanding of history, uh, and, and they, they don't understand the people that they're against, why they would do certain things, uh, this type of a thing, all of these elements are leading us into a, an area, a depth of which we cannot perceive, and implications which don't just play out next week, but will play out over months and years and, and create uncertainty. And the more uncertainty you have in trade and in, in relations between countries and everything else, the more potential for friction, for misunderstanding, and actually at some point for, for war. You're right. And, you know, 
you can't really study history, <clears throat> I feel, with any focus on currencies without seeing gold for what it's always been and, and therefore what it is. And once you see that, you can't really unsee it. And I'm often asked, why doesn't the youngest generation of investors understand the value of gold? And it struck me from a quote I heard from Luke Groman, who said, look, there's very, it's very rare that you actually need to own gold. But in those events where you do, it's about the only thing you want to own. And that happens about once per generation in his from his perspective. And so, you know, I that's why I I dollar cost average in just to continue every every uh, about three months, you know, and, and just to continue to accumulate over time if and when that event hits. I'll be happy to be sitting on that treasury. Hopefully it doesn't. And this is something I pass on to my kids. That's my plan for my gold. But the nature of events like, you know, those black swan events is that you can't see them coming. That's the definition of a, of a black swan event. So, you know, you've made some bullish calls for silver this year. I want to talk about that. I think you called out potential. I, I know price prediction is a, is a fun game more than anything, but you called out the potential for $50 silver. So can you elaborate on what you're seeing and, and how you pull that number? Last fall, I started writing about that. And I understand the para that any kind of a predictor or an analyst, and I'm not really a predictor, but I am an analyst, um, runs the risk of when you put price and time together. Yeah. So the price will be such and such, buy such and such. I'm willing to run that risk. And, you know, it came to me kind of intuitively last fall. It was a gentle feeling. And I thought, you know, I know the risk, but I also feel that next year could be the year that silver attacks fifty dollars. And it's it's been there's so many elements that show that this has been oversold for so long. I mean, you see a chart of all the metals, and and here's silver, the lonely one on it, that is half of what it was in 1980 in nominal dollars. All the other metals, including lowly iron, the most common element on the Earth's surface, up 1,100 percent. Silver down 50%, and yet silver is a, if not the linchpin of modern society, of technology, of warfare. I mean, it takes hundreds of ounces of silver for a cruise missile. Uh, it's used in medicine. Uh, it, you know, it's used in healing, uh, and it's used across the board. I mean, the EV revelation will take two to three times as much silver for every car as the IC cars, internal combustion engine cars do. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's in our clothing. Most of the clothing I'm wearing have silver in it. So, and yet it's treated like, it's not even treated like a base metal. It's not treated like leather zinc, you know, and, but at some point, and I know people are tired of hearing this and we've been wrong about thinking it will happen year after year, but it, I believe it's getting very close and it's only going to happen once. There'll be a day unlike any other day and that, uh, you know, everything will be different. And yesterday will be different than today and tomorrow. And yesterday will never happen again. Now, I can throw out figures of where I think silver is going to go. I do believe it's going to go into three digits when it gets on this moonshot. And it'll probably be a lot like the last two uranium markets where they had these massive spikes, which then retraced most of that, but then tried again to create a, a new market high, but failed. But in this case, unlike the uranium bull markets, there'll be a higher level of, of price, uh, uh, you know, latitude that will go on for, uh, for you know, many, many years. 
So in other words, we're looking, our, all of us today are, are in the, um, the idea of silver from say $12 to 50. And if you were back in 2000, you remember 495. And if you're back when I first started, you can remember 295. So instead of remembering going forward, instead of remembering 12 to 50, I think people are going to remember 80 to 120 or 70 to 150. And there'll be this broad trade. But I don't think once once it breaks three free, it's just it's just like copper. I don't ever see copper going back to 53 cents. Right. I mean, yeah. It's, it's almost it's almost it's trying to go five dollars mm. now. So I think it'll be that way with silver and it will join the rest of its cousin brethren in the metal space where it truly belongs and, and where it actually it should be king silver, not not, uh, you know, uh, the lowest member of the castle. Uh, right. Right. Well, that, you know, it's in line with the long term trend. Right. And uh speaks to me as an investor, not a trader, right? And so I'm looking at those long-term trends. That's why I'm pretty overweight, precious metals, equity stocks. So talk to me about how you're, how you're positioned your portfolio, David. And we spoke about, you know, central bank uh, reserves. I talked about, you know, personal reserves, right? Held in gold, but where are we making money? Where are you looking to make money this year? Well, I ascribe fully to David Morgan's letter, the Morgan Report, of which I'm the senior analyst. And he always recommends that you get physical silver first. No matter how little that is for your circumstance, get some gold and silver. And that serves as insurance. And it goes back to something you said earlier today that, you know, most people don't get the idea of how important gold is. Gold is insurance first, uh, profit second. And the irony is if you hold it for insurance, the profit takes care of itself, either by these periodic bulges like we saw in 2011 or starting back in 2000. And, and we're heading to again, which I believe we're close to a breakout above 2000, or just a simple accumulation of modest uh, elevation of gold's price over time. Uh, you know, most brokers would not believe this if you didn't show them, but you've seen the chart, I've seen it. Since 2000, over the last 20 some years, gold has outperformed over those 20 years by about 200%, the S&P 500. It's added four or 5% a year. Now, that's not real sexy when you think about it, about these big spikes, but it's maintained its purchasing power and what it can do to help you. It didn't really deteriorate like, uh, you know, the real value of stocks have or bonds or things like this. So having that physical is important. You're not you're not buying silver and gold like you buy a car or a boat or a fishing rod. You're making a, a purchase from going from an inferior form of what's called money it's actually fiat paper promises, as David calls them, to a superior form of money that's proven itself in times of need over thousands of years and will continue to do so, digital uh, coins notwithstanding. And we do have some that are actually backed by gold and silver, one of which is the load program that David and I have been associated with for five years. So gold and silver are making that transition successfully onto the blockchain space not just by load, but other projects, uh, you know, moving into the 21st century venue, just as a con continuum of what it's done for 2000 years. I also hold a lot of mining shares. I look for the best of the best. Uh, I try not to have too many because if you hit the ones, a few of them right, they won't move the needle very much if you have 50 or 100 stocks and three of them are okay. But if you have 25 and two or three do well, 
it concerns you to a new financial level. So that's always the potential. They have more risk. But at the same time, I saw a chart recently that in the last 35 years, mining stocks are at the lowest level in relationship to the S&P 500 and also in relation to the juniors and the explorers in relation to the seniors that they've been in almost 40 years. So the potential for people, if they get it right on their choices and don't over margin or go on leverage, they have the potential to make more money for X amount of effort that they're making than they have in the last 40 years. And this should compel people to accept that risk and relate it to their own risk profile and get out there and do the research and listen to you and others, and then go and make up their own mind based upon their own expectations, acceptance of risk, and their own goals. I love it, man. You're speaking my language, David. I mean, number one, you know what you said, buy physical before you buy the stocks. That's to say, build the moats before you try and build the castle, right? And I think right now we should be focused on building moats because nobody can tell you what the world's going to look like in a year, let alone 10. It's crazy times out there. Number two, when you're looking for that torque, that's when you hit the equities. And I'm there with you, quite overweight, precious metals equities right now. And the final thing that you said, which has been an important lesson for me over the last few years, you know, going back to 2016, we had this rally in the precious metal sector. And I tried to put money in every single deal that I could, right? I was like, I want a little piece of everything, right? A rising tide will lift all ships. And sure, like in a bull market, that's not the worst strategy. But, you know, as you mature as an investor, you realize return on time investment is the most important thing. And uh, I'm far more specific with my positions today. I go way bigger into a fewer um, deals. And that's following the counsel of individuals like yourself, individuals like the gurus in our sector from, you know, David Morgan through to Rick Rule, Marin Katusa, the names that we all know. You know, we're just copying and play and pasting the playbook. But um, David, look, I appreciate you coming on. It's been great chatting with you, getting you on the show. Any closing words? Any Where can I point people to to find more of your analysis? Well, I write monthly for the Morgan Report. I post a monthly essay it's going on eight years now for Money Metals. I, I write three or four articles by invitation a year on the Prospect of News. And uh, some of these articles are, are, you can go to the Morgan Report slash free report and actually get a couple if you'd like to read. And I can be reached. I cannot give financial advice, uh, you know, individual financial advice legally. But if somebody wants to write to me and get a perspective on something or have me point them in the direction of future research, they can write to ag. Excuse me, David S at L-O-D-E dot O-N-E. Uh, and uh, so happy to entertain some of their thinking. And, you know, Jay, you, what you're doing is so powerful. I never miss your, your podcast. And you have access to these people, which you did, and they're getting back to now that we're able to uh, travel more freely to your VRIC conferences and having these people on some of the deepest and most successful names in, in the circuit and people that listen to you and think about it, and you challenge them, including me, to think and reassess what I think is the best way to go. And continual learning is the way to continually greater success financially and personally, in my view. And I want to applaud you for what you're doing. Thanks, David. I really appreciate that. I love doing it. And that means the world. So thank you. Take care. All right. You too. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.